Welcome back to Artistic Beginnings. I'm Melody. And I'm Mitch. This is a podcast where we speak with a variety of creatives and their winding artistic paths. In this episode, we talk with Tessa Germain. She's a filmmaker, director, and writer. We covered a lot of topics with Tessa, but one that really stood out to us was how she leverages psychology principles when developing stories. If you have a friend that wants to make films or do anything in the film industry, do them a favor and share this episode with them. They'll learn something new and get some tips on how to take the next steps. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Tessa, I want to hear about that dream. So, <laughs> one time I actually dream edited my movie together. <laughs> like I woke up and I realized that the movie wasn't done and it wasn't all perfect like it had been in my dream. And I just kind of cried a little bit. <laughs> I was like, how do I... How do I recreate what I just imagined? It was perfect. My friend and I stayed up for days, like working on it together. And then I woke up and it was all unreal. It was very upsetting. (laughs) Oh my God, that's hilarious. But also I can't even imagine how upsetting that would be to be like, oh, it's done. I don't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, and then you wake up and you're back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. I did that with the script once too. I was in like major story mode and things just weren't working. We couldn't figure out how to get our B story in there. And I was like, ah, she has no motivation. And I went to bed and I like rewrote the entire story in my sleep. And then I woke up the next day and it was so realistic. I thought we had already done it. And I went about my day. And then the next day I talked to the writer and I'm reading the new draft. I'm like, this isn't what we decided. I was so mad at him. Oh, so so like you didn't That's... even try and remember what the record, uh, what you had actually written down. You no. were just like, oh, this actually happened, and I, I don't need to yeah. write this down once I've woken up. I genuinely thought it happened. And that's happened to me multiple times where I woke up and my dreams were so realistic. I thought they actually happened. And so I was so upset when I realized I dreamt it and I couldn't remember everything. (laughs) I had solved all our problems and I couldn't remember it. Oh, that's so upsetting. So how does that make you feel? What, What would Freud say? Freud would just say you're attracted to your parents and move on with his life. <laughs> yeah. For my one intro to psychology class that I took over one month, <laughs> I'm a pro. I know everything about Freud, you guys. Since we're on this track, we'll get back on, on track. I, I'm just kind of curious what this vein might, might produce. So you did take a psychology class. It was my freshman year of college, and we have this thing called interterm, and We either get all of January off or you can take an accelerated class within the month. And when you're a freshman, you can't get into any classes, (laughs) except I was able to get into intro to psychology. And I always wanted to take a psych class. And I had this super young grad student professor who was amazing. He was so cool. And he asked what we really wanted to learn about. It was great. I learned all the basics of psychology and also kind of the weird stuff. I can't remember what it's called, but there's this amazing thing where some people can like hear colors or they can oh, see Oh, synesthesia. Yes, synesthesia. Yeah. yeah. I actually have a friend, Haley, who didn't realize she had this until I was talking to her about it. And she does coloring for films. She's an amazing editor and she's an amazing colorist. And she was kind of helping me create the color palette for one of my films because I think it's really important to have color mean something in your movie. And she was Mm -hmm. so excited because that's her passion. And we were talking about it. And she was telling me about how she just hears color when she's working in the editing room. And I'm like, oh, my God, you have this. Funny enough, I actually 
wrote a paper about The Imitation Game, which is one of my all-time favorite films about the solving of Enigma during World War II. And it's really just about the man who did that. I love history films. I love World War II movies, historical fiction, anything of that realm is my shit. And so I ended up writing a paper about the use of color in that movie and how they stuck to a very clear color palette. It was all very aesthetically pleasing. It was yellows and reds and greens and royal blues that all worked really well together. And it also brought together like this sense of a vintage photograph. It made you feel like it was actually that era because it's the false sense of nostalgia. I really admired how they used the color red. Very similar to Jaws, they introduced red for the important moments. So when they're working on the Enigma machine, it has red cords going all over it. When they discovered something important, they had it in a red notebook. When the girl was the only woman to be taking the test to be part of the Enigma team, she was wearing red. So they use Mm. that to draw your attention to the important details and the important moments in the film. And I actually utilize that with my film, Rosie, because, you know, Rosie the Riveter, the red bandana, it's so iconic. So I wanted to use the color red to initiate important things. And I wanted that to be Rose's color. So she's the only one wearing a red dress at the dance. And we have James always wearing a red tie when he is important to a scene. We have the red blood when one of the characters gets injured. So I I really took after that. And I used the similar colors from the imitation game to create a sense of nostalgia while also using red as an important identifier. That's really incredible. So like, do you use a lot of these kind of psychological schemas to build those connections in the audience's mind other than color? Oh, absolutely. So I learned a lot more about psychology being a leadership studies minor than you would think, because Mm. a lot of our education is about how to work within a team. It's not about being a good leader in the sense of how do you direct a group of people. It's about how do you be a team player? How do you work with other people that you don't think you would necessarily work well with? And how do you just serve your community? So for one of our classes, we actually spent an entire semester delving into the Myers-Briggs code. But it wasn't just about taking this test and having your four-letter code, which, of course, a lot of people just think is stupid. We took the test, got our four-letter code, and then we used these workbooks and we studied what the codes meant and how they come to that conclusion. And we spent an entire semester of self-discovery deciding what our four-letter code was. Some people, it was the code that they got when they took the test. For others, it was something completely different. For some, it was just one letter off. But it was really interesting because I got to learn about all the different interaction styles of people and how people work. And when I made my junior film in rehearsal, I only had three characters in the entire film. And I really wanted to see why the two sisters, the two leads were fighting and what about them was so different other than the surface level, like one's a businesswoman, one's a free spirit. Mm -hmm. So I actually used that and used those books. And I created a four letter code for both of them and really decided what their interaction styles would be and why they would be in conflict and how they're going to come together, how they're going to find that common ground that lets them work together in the end. 
That's fascinating to me. Do you think that actors or other creators of this kind of media are thinking that deeply about the character development to be like, okay, these are the foundation or do they use a different type of process to create those conflict spaces for the people? What's interesting is I think it really depends on the actor. Working with two of my leads for Rosie, Bethany and James, amazing, wonderful actors that I love so dearly. I had so much fun working with both of them, but they work very differently. I think Bethany does go into a deep personal study, but she draws in more of herself, which is how I was when I was an actor. It was all about starting with myself and then building from there, how I would act in this situation, how I would be, and kind of creating a character from that. Whereas for other people, it is about starting from scratch. You find similarities in yourself, but there are a lot of actors I think would benefit from figuring out the four-letter code of their character and delving into it that way because they just want a deeper understanding of how their character ticks and they go into a more method format of becoming someone else. That's so cool. Like I've never thought to use that as a resource, but it's such a wonderful resource to just, you know, create a person or take pieces that you can tangibly look at and be like, okay, this is why this person is this way and create a character or, you know, develop a character more with Myers-Briggs. How interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's very beneficial for storytellers and for directors, especially because you can delve into like these deeper parts of your character. And it sometimes can help you answer questions that you wouldn't necessarily an easy time answering would my character do this or how would they act in this situation you can kind of look at this building blocks and make that decision based on their personality obviously it's not like mm-hmm. set in stone like every person acts exactly this way there's always there's free will and there's growth and there's change everyone's going to be changing your code may change as you grow But for actors, it can either if you're a method actor, I think it can be very beneficial. But if you're someone who builds from yourself and then goes from there, I think it could also be too much. It might water you down. You might get too focused on the little details and too focused on I'm supposed to be free loving and I wouldn't care about this. And I'm supposed to be an optimist. And so I wouldn't be thinking negatively about any situation. So it's really about finding a balance. As a director, I really liked it because if my actors were confused about why their character would act a certain way, I could kind of pull some of the phrases and some of the reasonings from these books without them ever even knowing that I had like a code set up for them (laughs) and I knew their personality types and such. That's wild. I mean, it also probably helped on set as far as, you know, working with different personality types, being able to identify what somebody may be and how to best work with that person as well. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, being a leadership studies minor has helped me so much in my film career. And I don't understand why more people don't study it. It's fantastic. I've really learned how to work with a team of people who may work differently than I do. And come out the other end still friends with a great product and proud of what we did. I feel like before I started studying this in depth, if someone was different than me and they did things differently, I just didn't like them and didn't want to work with them. But now I just take it from a different perspective and I'm able to work with those people and usually have a great time doing it as well. 
it's very interesting that more people, especially for directors or producers or even cinematographers, anybody who is more of a, a leadership job on the set, it's very interesting to me that they wouldn't or maybe it just wouldn't cross their minds to take a leadership class because it's it's such a important thing. It really <laughs> is. To be able to not only lead, but to work with a group of people. Like that is what filmmaking is, is working with a group of people. Well, and I've definitely seen a change in the industry and a lot of successful companies are studying leadership a lot more closely. Like I know mm. for a fact that Ted Sarandos, the CFO of Netflix, he studies leadership and he reads leadership books. And if you go onto Netflix's website and you read about their company culture and their mission and their values, you can tell that he and the rest of the Netflix team has really taken the time to figure out what their company is going to stand for and how they're going to treat their employees. I had the privilege of meeting some of the key creatives in the film and television departments, and they were telling us about how Everyone at Netflix has the power to greenlight. And that's unheard of. No production company yeah. has ever worked that way before, but they trust their employees and they value them and they share that trust and that value by telling them, we want you to make what you want to make. Just do it right and do it to the brand and have fun with it, but be responsible and you can do whatever you want. And that has worked so well from them because, I mean, they're Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes me love Netflix so much more. That's so cool and completely unheard of. <laughs> I know. But it's working well in their favor, you know? Mm -hmm. They're pumping out millions of things every single day. <laughs> well, and in times like this, everyone's on Netflix. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, and since you bring up the times like this, are they still producing stuff? Like, how are they able to even make things if we're not able to be in the same area? So they are, they're still in pre-production on a lot of projects. Most most companies in Hollywood right now, they're, on, they're in pre-production doing what they can online and over Zoom, you know, working on scripts and such. And they're in post-production. So editors are still hard at work because, I mean, an editor just has to sit in a dark room by themselves and work mm -hmm. on it. Obviously, they can't do a face-to-face -face interaction with any directors at the time. But they basically shut down all of their offices and all productions, but they are moving forward with post-production. So hopefully within the next few weeks, they will be able to pump out some new products that were in post. And once this crisis is lifted, they'll have a whole bunch of creative content to get started on. I know not a lot of companies are really pushing to find new scripts or produce new stories right now, which is unfortunate because as soon as this pandemic is over, I predict a huge content boom. Like everyone's going to oh, want to get yes. back out there. And honestly, 100%. You know, everyone in Hollywood has a script. Well, after this, they're going to have two or three. So yeah. It's interesting to me that they're not taking this time to get all the pre-production stuff done so that when it's lifted, they can just go, you know? That seems like a interesting choice. <laughs> it's not as simple as that, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of people, though, that are going to be smart and they're going to finalize their scripts and really hone mm -hmm. in on their stories 
so that once this is lifted, they can start the pre-production process of financing and attaching people and working in teams again. I hope people are working as much as they can right now so that once this is lifted, I mean, there's going to be plenty of movies in the theaters once this is lifted. But Yeah, because everything's being postponed. They're all going to release at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Come 2021, yeah. though, I'm a little nervous for what we're going to have in theaters. Yeah, it, it should be interesting. Is there going to be like a gap? There might be a little bit of a content gap in theaters. Tessa, how are you spending your time given this quarantine situation? What are you doing? You know, everyone's been saying, pick up a hobby. And I actually did. <laughs> so I've explored painting. I spent four months in Italy, my sophomore year. And at the very end of my semester, I took a painting class with this nice Italian man. And it was just so relaxing sitting there working on my painting, mm. drinking a cappuccino, messing up and having him fix it for me. It was great. <laughs> I would screw up and then he would just take my paints and like paint on top of it. And paint over it? Yeah, he would paint <laughs> over it. Yeah, he would just be like, that's wrong and fix it. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. But it was just so relaxing. And it was something that I'm not a crazy perfectionist, but I definitely am unhappy when something isn't quite what I want it to be. But for some reason with painting, I've been able to just paint something. And if it's not perfect, be like, eh, I'll try again later. So yeah, I started painting by myself. I don't have a nice Italian man to fix my mistakes for me now, but it's okay because I'm learning and I'm exploring it. And it's been really fun. I like that I'm doing it for me too, you know, because my other art... Mm -hmm. I want to do as a career and I make it for other people. But this one's just for me. I just do this for myself and it's a nice little hobby to have and it's a nice little skill to be improving upon. And hopefully, you know, I can paint stuff that I give to friends and everything because I can't just keep all these canvases that I currently have <laughs> in my house. <laughs> but it's just a nice thing to be exploring and it definitely has had a calming effect on me. You brought up a really interesting point which is a lot of artists are art is our job and you know it's hard to find that relaxing and I think art for a lot of people is like you said painting is a very relaxing thing it's a very calming thing I think creativity is something that everyone does to kind of decompress but when that is your job it's hard to find those things that decompress you. And I think the Absolutely. fact that you found something in the arts that is in no way, shape or form going to be what you want to do with the rest of your life to make money or, you know, whatever, and just kind of do it is great. And I yeah. think it's hard to find for some people. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important for everyone to dabble in the arts, whether it be you just sing a little bit on your own, or you paint a little bit, or you make home movies with your friends, whatever it is, it's important to do it even if it's not going to be your career, even if it's not your biggest passion. I think it's important because it does unleash this creativity that affects every part of your life. And for me, opening that creative side of myself has always been sort of difficult. I've just taken uh, doors closing in my face very badly. And sometimes that stops me from being as creative as I would like to be. So now having this outlet, I've dealt with a lot of heartbreak this year and having this outlet to just kind of 
pour what I'm feeling out onto a canvas and just have it for me, not need to share it, not have to improve upon it. There's no timeline. There's no deadline. I can just do this as I like. It's definitely affecting me in other parts of my life. I want to write more now. I want to edit more and make more films. And it's nice just having this outlet that I can enjoy. So now that we've gotten so far deep into all this content, this is really awesome. (laughs) Let's uh, maybe take a step back a bit. Can you introduce yourself and and give a little background on who you are, Tessa? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I was a child actor, how I met Sweet Melody. I started when I was about six years old. Kind of a funny story. I was watching Drake and Josh. And I saw Miranda Cosgrove. I think it's on Netflix. Is it really? Oh, well, now I, I know so. what I'm doing for quarantine. There you go. <laughs> You're screw, welcome. screw painting. Just screw painting. <laughs> screw painting. Let's just rewatch Drake and Josh. <laughs> Funny enough, Drake and Josh was the show that kind of opened up the door for me because I saw Miranda Cosgrove, who was a young actress at that time. And mm. I was like, well, if she can do that, I can do it. And I turned to my mom and I was like, I want to be on TV. And she laughed in my face. And (laughs) at six years old, I had a lot of things I wanted to do. You know, I was like, I want to be in pageants. I want to be a dancer. I want to do this. But for some reason, being on TV was the one that stuck for me. I was more talkative of a child than I am as an adult, which is saying a lot. And I bugged my mom to all hell. Until finally, she got me in an acting class, and I loved it. So she sent my photo out to a few agents and was like, all right, if something comes with this, great. If not, she can just do her little acting class, and it will all be over. First agent I met with signed me, and I was with them for the rest of my career. That was the beginning of the end. My mom had to become a stage mom, and... (laughs) I spent the next 12 years driving up to LA from Orange County for auditions and for acting classes. I did voice classes for a little bit as well, but that was not a path we were going to go down. And yeah, I did quite a few commercials. Most of them never aired. I was the commercial killer. Even the ones I did background on never made it to air. (laughs) Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah, I had a few when I was a young kid, but nothing really went national. Either they wouldn't air or they'd cut me out. I was, yeah, (laughs) I had a lot of bad luck as an actor. But then I was on quite a few TV shows. I did two episodes of Punked. I was on CSI. I did the event. All small like guest stars and co-stars, but it was a great time and I loved doing it. Then when I was about 12, I started writing because after spending six years reading scripts and working on film and television for pretty much every day of your life, being a professional at six years old, seven years old, eight years old, it's crazy to think about. But I started thinking about stories a lot and I really enjoyed writing stories and telling stories. So I started writing for the first time and It was mostly like short stories or treatments to turn into longer stories. And then I started getting into screenwriting. And I actually, one of the ideas that I wrote, my manager really liked it at the time. And so did a bunch of other people who put in some money and we made a pilot presentation and actually tried shopping it around to networks. We got into the door of some big studios too, but uh, nobody bought it, unfortunately. What was the story? 
it was <laughs> it was called Today's Tiaras. Funny enough, it was really timely. It was right before the big boom of fairy tale shows. You know how we had mm. like Once Upon a Time and then Disney started remaking all of their movies as live action. Yeah. It was like right when all of that was starting and fairy tales were the it thing. And the story was about five princesses in modern day, all as friends in high school. And I really wanted to explore like the issues that people go through in middle and in high school and show that anyone can be a princess even today. That was my sweet child concept. And that was a really rough time that lasted for like four years, getting that made and shopping it around and writing new feature scripts and writing pilots. And it was a huge process. And actually, it was a very draining process for me, because even though it was my concept and it was my original writing, I was a child. And so people just kind of shut me out of the process and went about it without me. I felt like every new draft of a feature I would get, it was less and less the story I wrote, which is fine. Of mm. course, I was 12 and it's not going to be what you want it to be. But I felt like they were losing the core purpose and the theme of it. And that is what really hurt because I thought these people understood the theme and clearly they weren't. So after that, I was kind of in a rut creatively and I decided I'd never want to write something again to give away to someone and watch them ruin. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is every screenwriter in Hollywood is sighing right now going, yeah, <laughs> that's the job. Yeah, no, it's true. That's why so yeah. many directors are writer directors because they really just wanted to write and they realized if they gave it away to somebody else, it wouldn't be what they wrote. And that's it's very how true. I fell behind the camera. I started looking into film school and... In high school, my creativity kind of came back when I joined the drama department, mostly for friends, but also for an appreciation of theater. I love theater. I still love theater. I don't like doing it as much because I'm not good, but I appreciate it a lot. It's an art form I've always enjoyed. And I actually still have season tickets to our local theater, Seagerstrom, which gets all of the Broadway touring shows. Mm -hmm. And I just love going to the theater so much. And I love reading plays and listening to music. So that was really nice for me. And I met people who were also interested in film. And I started a film club. And that's when I really fell into behind the camera. And I realized that's where I always wanted to be. Acting was fantastic. And it was a great beginning for me. But as I got older, of course, it becomes harder and your characters change. You go from playing the cute little kid to the snotty teenager to the drug addict running away from their family. Like It's quite a different world and you're constantly trying to grow and change within these new characters and this new framework. And as much as I loved it and I appreciate what it taught me, I don't think acting is my true calling. I think it was always just storytelling and doing that through filmmaking and through writing scripts and producing them and directing them. That's my true passion. Do you have any of like core memories of when that kind of switch happened in your mind or any kind of transitional moments, experiences that you had that kind of led you to be like, oh, making films is the, the direction I want to go? Yeah, actually. So this is kind of crazy. When I was in eighth grade, I started touring colleges. At the time, I was still into acting 
And I always told my parents, like, I'm not going to college. I'm an actor. And they just laughed and were like, yeah, you're going to college. And so (laughs) with my school, I ended up going on a college tour of Chapman University. And they took us through the film school, Dodge. And that's when it kind of clicked for me, like, oh, my God, there are all these other jobs and all these other things I could be doing in the film industry besides acting or screenwriting. That's when I really started looking into all the different things I could be doing. And I started creating my own videos with my film club and stuff and exploring those different career paths. And that's when I started to love directing because I realized I loved working with actors because I understood actors. I was an actor. I know exactly what they're going through and I understand the different methods and it was so much easier to connect with them and to try and get them to do what I wanted them to do while also giving them creative freedom. I also really like the logistical side of it and putting together a team of people and finding locations and getting the film made and funding it and all of that. So that's how I started to realize directing and producing were kind of my two biggest interests. Then I spent the next four years or five years prepping to get into film school and Chapman was always my number one choice. So it's kind of funny that the thing that made me realize this is something I could do and I want to do is actually also where I ended up learning how to do it. Can you tell me a story of an experience early on in in your kind of path to producing and directing that kind of gave you an understanding of like, oh, this is something I need to do that has helped you in your current process of making Rosie? Interesting. That's a really good question. (laughs) Well, I can't say outcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my first official short film starring Melody Hollis, Mm -hmm. outcast. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, that was that was a time where I definitely developed skills as a filmmaker. I think I learned a lot from that little production. I also learned the importance of having a theme and having a story that matters. Mm-hmm. Outcast obviously is not the highest quality production ever since it was made by a bunch of high schoolers. But it was just, (laughs) you know, a couple of kids with a camcorder and it wasn't the most well-developed story, but it was just about a girl who felt misunderstood and was picked on. And at the end, she finds a little bit of hope in a potential friend. And I still have it up on YouTube today, even though it feels kind of embarrassing from like a a filmmaker's perspective, because it's definitely not (laughs) my best work. But at the same time, it's where I started. And every time I go on there and I think, ah, I should probably delete it now, some new elementary or middle school kid has found it and comments on it. That's how I feel. I wish I had friends. I wish I didn't feel this way. And that breaks my heart, but also it also warms it knowing that this has provided a little bit of comfort to someone out there. And that's why I make movies. It's not necessarily, I mean, one day I would love to make films that reach wide audiences, of course, and they're big box office hits. But to me, if I make something that's important to at least one person, then I've done my job. And that film has done its job. It was important, not just to one person, but to a handful of people. And it continues to be important to those kids. And, you know, middle school is a tough time. So if this is one yep. thing that they connect to and that makes them feel good, I got to leave it up there for them. Yeah, that developed a lot of my storytelling skills and filmmaking skills. 
But also around that time is when I started my hobby of research binging. I definitely go on Google hunts. (laughs) A Google hunt? I love that. (laughs) It's true, though. You know, when you get something in your brain and you're just like, I wonder what that is. And you Google it and then you end up in a spiral. And then four hours later, you know way more about this than you probably should have ever known. That's me. But I take it to a whole new level. I don't just like... (laughs) It's a scary thing. I don't just like read articles. I watch documentaries. I buy books. I go to a whole other extreme and just become a master at one topic. And I went on a Google hunt about the Rosie the Riveter We Can Do It poster because I saw this story about the woman who inspired it. And I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. And the more I dug in and the more I learned about it, I learned that this one woman, she claimed to be the inspiration because of this photo, but it turns out she wasn't the woman in the photo. It was actually Naomi Parker Fraley. And then she had to like reclaim her identity. And it was like this whole drama. And it turns out we don't actually know if that photo inspired the poster. That is all just theory. There's no fact behind it. So in, in all honesty, like Naomi Parker Freely probably did inspire it. The photo is very similar, came out at the right time. The artist would have seen it in the newspaper. It makes sense, but we don't know and we'll never know. Mm. The artist is no longer with us. His family is no longer with us. He had no descendants and there's been no literature found on it. It's this lost story. And I love that because it could be anything. And so Mm. I continued to do like these research binges on Rosie the Riveter and the real Rosies of the war and what they did and the stories of what they experienced. And from there, I, over the years, just developed more and more knowledge about this time in history and about these amazing women. And that's when I decided I want to make this into a film. And funny enough, I wrote it freshman year as a script in a screenwriting class, and it wasn't very good. It was just my first screenwriting class, a fun little script to write, but someone liked it, and they asked me to write their junior film. And so I ended up writing other people's projects because of it, and my senior year, or my junior year, right before senior year, when I was trying to figure out what to make my senior film on, my friends who knew about this passion and knew about this story that I loved so dearly were like, you have to make this. And so I did. And it's been a wild journey too, continuing to do like this research spiral. And I took it a step further and I ended up reaching out to Real Rosies and the daughters of Real Rosies, which are called Rosebuds. Super cute. That's adorable. Oh, that's so cute. Isn't that great? I talked to numerous Rosebuds and they told me about their mother's stories and some sent me photos and articles and documentaries. And I ended up finding this thing called the Rosie the Riveter Project, which is where a documentary filmmaker actually went and recorded real Rosies talking about their experiences and put it on a website with NYU. And I'm so grateful to them because... That was a huge resource for me because a lot of these women, unfortunately, have passed away. There's very few of them left. And I'm just so lucky that I got to meet some before they're all gone and got to make this film while some of them are still here and can see it. I totally went on a whole rant there. The question was, what skills have I learned? I would say researching. (laughs) Research is 
massive. And especially on something that is historical, you know, you have to make sure that it's historically accurate. You can't just be guessing. But I think that's what's cool about the story that you picked is because we don't know the exact origin behind it. It gives you room as a storyteller to create such a cool idea behind it. And because you know, that's just one. You can make as many as you want. You know, you can have so many different versions, which I think exactly. is Exactly. Awesome. It was so nice having the freedom as a storyteller to decide what this story should be while mm-hmm. honoring those women. That was the big thing. This right. The film is actually bits and pieces from a lot of women's stories. So nothing in it is false. Nothing in this film is unreal. It's just that it's not one real story. That's why I love historical fiction, because you have freedom as a storyteller, but you're also telling true history. I can send you my research. You can look at the women I looked at and (laughs) and you can see the women that I talked to and they'll tell you like, yeah, that did happen to me. Wow, that's so cool. I love these kind of things, too, because it really makes it clear that great stories come with a lot of creativity from the creators, but it's really coming down to the creatives that are working on it are giving themselves restrictions and kind of guidelines that they can't break. And Mm -hmm. by doing that, you stay within the realm of, you know, this is a creative interpretation, but there are boundaries that that you can't cross and, and shouldn't to make it more of a cohesive story. Exactly. And it was it was nice having boundaries and having guidelines for this as well. Sometimes it feels like it's restricting, but I think that is the strength of a true storyteller. Can you tell this story with these restrictions? And yeah. if you can and you can do it well, then you've got a career in this. I hope I did it well. I hope people think that. <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, the draft that we saw the, is awesome. The final cut. I'm very excited. I'm excited to see where it goes from the version that we saw to the finished product that Don will finally be able to see. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Don. I want you to I want you to be proud of me. <laughs> the harshest critic. <laughs> Love you, Don. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cause it's cause she tells the truth, whether it's nice or not. She's like, Well, if you don't believe me when I tell you that I don't like it, how will you believe me when I tell you that I do like it? And I'm it's like, that's true. very true. <laughs> my dad is like that as well. He's also a harsh critic. I showed him one of my paintings the other day. And he was like, oh, I like that, but not that. He's like, that's nice, except for this. You should probably change that. And I'm like, well, it's glued on, so. <laughs> Do you think that that's helped you, though? Like, knowing that your dad has been critical in that kind of way? Like, that has that, like, guided you at all? Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, sometimes you just want your parents to pat you on the back and be like, good job, kiddo, and make you feel better. But at the same time, when my dad does really like something that I've made and he gives me a compliment, I know it's genuine. I know it's real. And it's definitely been a great motivator for me. My mom's more the one who's always like, that's great, sweetie. She'll give me her criticism. Trust me. She will give it to me. (laughs) But she also knows when I just need to hear, that's great, sweetie. And so it's nice to have that balance. When I just need to hear, good job, I can go to my mom. And then when I'm ready for the real criticism, I put them two together and oh boy, does it come. Amazing. Well, thank you, first off, for all this stuff. It's gold. I do want to have some time to go on to the closing questions. Oh, no, of course. Get your answers on here. Do you have your notebook ready of your answers? (laughs) Yes. In case you you are. 
in case everyone did not know, I am the biggest fan of Artistic Beginnings. And so I know the questions they're going to ask me. And I was prepared. Hopefully they don't throw some new ones at me. Wouldn't it be hilarious if we just changed all of them? (laughs) Just for your episode, we don't ask any of the same questions. It'd be so mean. (laughs) Damn it, Mitch, we should have done that. What is the easiest thing about pursuing the arts? (laughs) Who have you learned the least from? (laughs) What quotes do you hate? No, what quotes don't you have? What quotes don't you have? What what keeps you up during the day? (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, Oh, man. Coffee. I can answer that one. (laughs) There you go. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. First question. What is the hardest thing about pursuing the arts? I actually didn't prepare for this one. Damn it. Uh, (laughs) The hardest thing about pursuing the arts is not being afraid to fail. The hardest thing is failing, actually. The hardest thing is failing and accepting failure and being able to fail and move on from it. As an actor, it was the rejection dealt with rejection every single day of my life. And I did it for all of my growing years from six years old until I graduated high school. I was dealing with rejection constantly. It takes a really strong person to be able to handle that. And that's why I think child actors have such an advantage in this world because they've handled a lot more than other kids have. But being able to fail and know it and be okay with it is really, really hard I remember I made a short film for one of my directing classes and this was just like a small class project, but I took it seriously. I was like, I don't make enough films. I need to make a full short film. And I did. And it sucked. It was awful. And I basically, my class was like, yeah, that was terrible and (laughs) had very little redeeming (laughs) qualities about it. (laughs) And that hurt. It hurt a lot. And I was really down on my luck, but honestly, I just had to remind myself I'm in film school to fail. This is the place that I should be failing. I want to fail now so that when I get out into the real world, I can be successful and I'll learn, have learned from my mistakes and can grow from that. So mm-hmm. I just had to pick myself up and go again. And even with my junior film, though I'm very proud of it now, I definitely saw a lot of mistakes in it. I still see a lot of mistakes in it. And I felt like certain parts of it were kind of a failure for me. But I had to just accept that we failed at times. And now I've learned from it. And I'm going to take that with me to the next project. And now I look at that film and I'm just very proud of it because it taught me so much. So, Tessa, what keeps you up at night? Oh, man. The questions. Sometimes at night. When I can't fall asleep, I just sit there and I'm asking myself a thousand questions. Have I done enough? Should I have done other things? Do I really want this? Is this what's good for me? Of course, this is what's good for me. Do I have enough friends? Will I ever find love? Do I have to choose between love and a career? Did Melody look at me funny? Does she hate me now? What did I say to make (laughs) Melody hate me? Like, I would tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know you would. (laughs) So you don't have to question that. (laughs) It's like the dumbest little questions get into my brain and it just turns into all of this 
crazy anxiety of questions racking my brain. But that's why I always try to read a book before bed or I watch a TV show or a movie because I just kind of need an escape. I need something to let me escape my brain and relax and be able to fall asleep into this world, this other place. So <laughs> yeah, it's really just like this ball of anxiety of questions. I don't know. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had this? Oh yeah, big time. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, I, I always go to bed and my brain just starts like, oh, you're, you're getting ready for bed? Oh, here are a bunch of questions that you need to solve by the end of the evening. Yeah. And I just... <laughs> keep on racking my brain and they're like really big issues that i'm having well they seem like big issues at the time but it could just be like really like meaningless crap but yeah no it's a, it's a huge frustration because it's i'm trying to turn off my brain and my brain is like oh you want me to turn me off let me turn it up and a few notches so that you can really think about some shit like some bad things you did today like exactly. i don't know like just anxiety things i i get you i get you yep my brain always does the thing where it's like, hey, do you remember that time in 2016 when you said that really stupid oh, thing to that God. person? <laughs> like, that is what my brain does. It's like, hey, here's a list of your greatest hits of being a dumbass. <laughs> and it's like, so I'm sure everybody thinks that of you. And like, that's the only way that they remember you. And anytime that I think that or I bring it up to somebody, they're like, why do you remember that? I literally like, I've never thought about that. I'm like, well, I do, obviously. Oh, I think about all my failed yeah. flirting attempts and just oh, sit there yeah. in a Those ball of ones. anxious, cringing death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are always good. Yeah. Super fun. <laughs> yeah. So that's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last question. To a person that might be interested in pursuing the arts while still working a nine to five, what advice would you give them? Don't wait. That's been my biggest problem is I sit there and I wait for this next thing. I wait to get a better camera. I wait to get into film school. Oh, I wait till I'm living alone. I wait till I have better software. Just stop waiting. If it's something that you truly love and you're doing this because you're passionate about it, whether it be as a career or for yourself, just sit down and do it. And don't let the fear of failure control you embrace failure. Enjoy failing now while you can. If you're pursuing this as a career, you want to fail and you want to grow from that. So don't wait. Just do it. Hey guys, thanks for listening. You can find out more about our guest on Instagram at rosythefilm on vimeo.com slash Tessa Germain and she has a little special shout out to lookingaheadprogram.org. Tessa's information and more details about the interview can be found on our website www.artisticpodcast.com. If you liked the conversation, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way for people to find our podcast and to help support the show. For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Cinco de Mayo.